Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Drew Clark recently wrote a piece for the Deseret News that got us thinking about what does it mean to be a fan? A fan of music, a fan of television show, a fan of movies. And what is the proper interaction between fans and the creators of that art? And so in that article, Mr. Clark discussed a new movie set in the Star Trek universe. In December of 2015, Paramount and CBS sued the would-be producers of Axanar for the unauthorized creative activity in a galaxy controlled by Star Trek copyright holders. And uh, this piece was in the uh, Deseret News. He sees calls for a new balance in the universe of uh, copyright. Some authors, like J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, welcome fan-made books and movies. Uh, she says, quote, she's happy for spinoffs to be published online as long as the publications are not sold and it's made clear that she's not involved in the stories and that such works are not pornographic or racist. But how far is too far for fans to go? Do fans have the right to create uh, spinoffs? So we're going to uh, discuss that. We're also going to discuss the Klingon language. It's always a good day when we discuss Klingon language, uh, fan culture, ownership, many of these uh, themes. So we uh, bring in uh, Drew Clark, who's a counsel with Best, Best, and uh, Krieger. That That's right. It? That's right. Previously opinion editor of Deseret News. That's right. And uh, you've written widely, Ars Technica, Giga Ohm, National Journal, Slate, Washington Post. Understanding you earned your bachelor's degree with honors from Swarthmore. And your master's degree from Columbia uh, University Graduate School of Journalism, law degree at George Mason University School of Law. So, welcome. Th- thanks for having me, Tom. And uh, we bring in Lynn McNeil uh, back to the program. She is assistant professor of folklore in the English department at Utah State University. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, remind us of your area of specialty. Yes, I study digital culture as well as legend and belief, and it's digital culture that mostly ties to questions of fandom and things like that. Fans as folk communities and the creations of fans as forms of folklore. Uh, so let's hear, we have several clips. Let's hear, um, I think we have something promoting the wizarding world of Harry Potter, Universal Studios. Let's hear this. That'll get us into this article. This is the piece that uh, Drew Clark wrote. We all wonder, wonder what it would be like to fly, to have incredible power, to journey to a world beyond anything we thought possible. We wish, we hope, we dream. Then we come to realize wonder can be real after all. So hopefully, if, you know, if you're into Harry Potter, that makes you want to go. And you, Drew Clark, with your daughter, went. That's right. Uh, pe- people are probably wondering, well, who, who is this guy you're having on the the, the radio here? Uh, and I, I think of myself as someone who crosses the borders between journalism and law. And I've been in the realm of of writing and working in the law for for some years now. I I write a column, as you mentioned, Tom, for the Deseret News, actually on on hiatus now because I'm doing a lot of work with the Gary Johnson uh, campaign for president. Uh, But uh, hope to come back to that uh, at a later time. Uh, And, and of course, professionally, I work as an attorney uh, working in the fields of telecom and technology. And and in my column, I like to weave in things about um, my personal life that may be relevant to a broader audience. So um, uh, as, as you, you mentioned, I went out to the wizarding world of Harry Potter in, uh, in uh, uh, Universal Studios uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles, and it was just enchanted by this notion of there's something on the page of a J.K. Rowling book. It makes its way into a movie, and then, and then here you are in a physical place, and you're kind of entering the life the the imagination that that originally took place in in another form entirely in a book, so here it just to me seemed a perfect example of someone drawing us in literally pulling us into the world of Harry Potter, and so so I kind of used that to pull in another recent event that I happen to have some uh, interest in. There's the Salt Lake Comic Con, which uh, actually. It's coming up pretty pretty soon, and and I went to that last year with the same daughter who who likes fantasy and fiction and and so forth, 
And there, uh, you know, I met some of the folks who were doing this film called Prelude to Axanar. Well, actually, so Prelude to Axanar has actually been done already. It's a very, it's like a 21-minute film. And they're in the process of doing another film, Axanar. And shall I pivot to talk about Star Trek a bit, Tom? Or do you want want to stick on Harry Potter for a moment? No, let's, let's pivot. And to do that, let's hear we have a bit from Prelude to Axanar. Stardate 2241.03. The planet Arcanus 4. Founded nearly a century before, this research outpost has grown into a flourishing, full scale city. It is a shining example of Federation progress. There could be no Federation without Earth. And the fact that the humans could lead the formation of the Federation just a few years after their war with the Romulan Empire is nothing short of extraordinary. But it represents something very different to the Klingon Empire. Growing tired of diplomacy, their High Chancellor proclaims, if words were water, the humans would drown us all. The bad blood between the humans and the Klingons meant that the job of preventing war and leading the peace delegations fell to Vulcan. Regrettably, we failed. For 12 hours, the Klingon disruptors do not stop. Arcanus is reduced to rubble. Thousands of its inhabitants are dead. Countless more are missing. The first victims in what will come to be known as the Four Years' War. So that's a bit from uh, Axanar, the prelude. This is about a 20-minute uh, right. film. It's $100,000 or something, but it seems to be fairly well produced. It, it, the quality of, of digital equipment makes it easier and easier for low-budget uh, efforts to have a professional value, you know, production values in, in the way they come forward. And so the lines between fan fiction, or fan movies and, quote, professional are blurring in that way. And I'm sure that presents, obviously, some, some issues that, that we're here to talk about. So, so just backing up a bit, of course, you know, your listeners will know Star Trek. It's a Extremely well known. Fifty, you know, they've passed their fiftieth anniversary for uh, the TV show, and then there's a movie franchise. And CBS is the owner, the creator, and owner of the the, the franchise of the TV series, and and its affiliated Paramount uh, is the owner of the nine, I believe, movies that have have come out. Uh, now, I'm I'm not a, a huge Trekkie. We were chatting about this beforehand. I I've learned just enough to understand what's going on. But but basically, in the um, second or third films of the you know beginning in 1979, um, the the Klingons began to appear as a as a you know race and a people and and they st- and there were lang- and there were words that were spoken, and I believe it was really the the second or third episode where there began to be a full-scale language uh, discuss, you know, talked. And, and, and I've, I've actually, you know, it's fascinating uh, uh, activity. Uh, most languages are spontaneous, and they, they emerge over many, many years. But there are, and they emerge out of the natural interactions of people. I mean, uh, I'm, again, not a linguist by any means, but, but, you know, what you pick up is that languages are very communal, very, very communal, that you can't really have a language in isolation. Now, you can have created languages. Esperanto is one famous created language designed to be this rational language, followed rules, strict rules, and you know, there's been some people who have, who have taken off with it, but it's it's really not been regarded as a successful experiment. By contrast, I guess I would say Klingon, which in some ways started as a joke, has, has really become this curious little... Um, Manifestation hmm. of fan creativity. Now, now, as I, and I mentioned this in the the column, um, Paramount did commission this dialogue with Klingon in the uh, in in the second film. And, and so they, they may feel some proprietary right, right to the language. And that's part, of, that's part of this lawsuit, I believe, right? Well, exactly. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Drew Clark and Lynn McNeil. This is State of the Arts. Would a doctor ever prescribe art? Several recent studies may make you wonder. 
Listening to music may boost running performance up to 15%. Children and teenagers listening to music after major surgery reported pain reduction on a scale equivalent to over-the-counter pain medications. Viewing aesthetically appealing artwork lowered the pain scores of volunteers who were subjected to discomfort. And music has been used as a pathway to healing and memory in patients with dementia. So, visit a museum, attend a concert or play, and add to your playlist. It may just be good for your health. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. You're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Drew Clark. He wrote an article recently for the Deseret News uh, discussing a new movie, proposed movie anyway, set in the Star Trek universe. And uh, Paramount and CBS uh, were were at least at that time suing the would-be producers of Axanar for unauthorized creative activity. That got us thinking about it, got Drew Clark thinking, got us thinking about fandom. Uh, fans want to interact, in fact, want to live, at least briefly, in those worlds that are created. And uh, so where does copyright come in? Uh, what do fans own, quote-unquote? And uh, where does that intersect with the created word or uh, music or film? We're talking about that and related topics with uh, Drew Clark. Uh, Lynn McNeil is Assistant Professor of Folklore in the English Department. Let me start with with ownership fans feel. So, Lynn McNeil, this is not only Star Trek universe, but anything fans really get into, at least a subset, feel a real ownership. Yeah, and that's good that you point out a real subset. This is something that that scholars of fandom and fan creations are interested in, is what actually makes someone a fan. And in general, when we when we speak about a fandom, we're not simply talking about the quantity of viewers who watch a thing when it airs. We're talking about that subset of viewers who move beyond passive engagement with the content that they like and get into to an active participation, to to becoming co-creators of material. And I think it's it's an instinct a lot of people have. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter is an excellent example. People read those books and want to live in them. That's a world that is so rich and so well created. You can write yourself in. You can imagine getting your letter of invitation to Hogwarts as an 11-year-old. And the reality is, is that long before Universal Studios gave us the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, people were doing it on their own. I've attended Harry Potter parties where people have made butterbeer and carved <laughs> wands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, among academics, it's easy to find a lot of graduation robes mm-hmm. that make you mm-hmm. look like you're an appropriate attire for, mm-hmm. for Hogwarts as an institution. And that sort of form of play is something that people have been doing since time immemorial, people have pretended to be the characters from stories that they enjoy, have embraced that, have done it themselves. I think what we're seeing now is that our ability to broadcast our play has become exponentially greater in a way it never was. Star Wars, just to pick a, an example, came out in 1977. And probably that day, there were kids going home and taking a stick or a broom handle and making lightsaber noises and all of these things. And then, you know, we fast forward to now where you can film yourself doing that. There, There's a very famous early Internet viral video known simply as Star Wars Kid that features a young, awkward teenage boy who's now an adult successful lawyer in Canada somewhere mm-hmm. um, playing with a golf ball retriever as though it is a lightsaber. Mm-hmm. And that video, one, went viral, and then two, began being adapted, and people began making movie trailers out of it, appropriating the Lucasfilm Limited logo, appropriating the green screen that shows up before movie previews, giving it a soundtrack, providing overlays, drawing in the actual lightsabers. And that's a form of play that that simply hasn't really been available to us for that long. And then the ability to broadcast that, we get into a, a territory that I think manufacturers and creators of of content were simply unprepared for. It's one thing to play in a limited sphere, you know, by yourself. It's a to make your own butterbeer. It's another thing to make butterbeer and 
sell the recipe. Right. That's where, Drew Clark, that's where we come to this interesting point now where I'm sure Paramount and CBS uh, were aware of a lot of these fan films, but they're but but the technology is enabling fans on a fairly limited budget to put out something pretty spectacular. And I guess the, the plans yeah. were a Kickstarter campaign and, yeah. and then Axanar where they were going to make a, a full length film. Well, well, absolutely. And and, uh, you know, as as we've we've discussed, there's there's definitely a um, Look, different different copyright holders have different attitudes towards fan films, right? And and none are leaping to mind that are you know total crackdownish. But we we started by talking about J.K. Rowling how she she likes uh, or is willing to have people adapt her her work on a non commercial basis and and use it. And and look, I mean, let's just we haven't sort of laid out the copyright part of this, so let's let's speak a minute or two about that now. Copyright law. In the United States, um, owes its genesis to a, a phrase in the Constitution that says to secure for limited times the um, uh, the, 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 the to, to, to excuse me to advance the progress of science and the useful arts. Congress has the power to pass a law that secures for limited times the you know inventions and art of of individual creators, and so that led to the Patent Act and the Copyright Act uh, in 1790, and they've been amended, of course, as you'd imagine. The basic bottom line is that the copyrights keep going up and up and up in length mm. and time. It's now 95 years. Uh, uh, for a kind of corporately held copyright or the life of the author plus 70 years for a copyright held by an individual person. And that's quite a long period of time. And so you, you basically are, we are in a world where there's a disjunction between the, the norms of people sharing information uh, that, 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 that really would generally historically be regarded as copyright infringement um, and and yet, uh, you know, people people do that quite frequently. So copyright law, of course, protects authors who who create a book. Right, that's the simple basic. I write a book, I copyright it, I get the exclusive right to sell it. J.K. Rowling, of course, is is a very wealthy woman because she held the copyright to her books, which are great, fabulous and imaginative. Well, then she licenses the ability to make a audiovisual work from that, and then. And of course, it's not universal, as we discussed earlier. It's Time Warner, mm -hmm. completely separate studio, which held, which holds the rights to those films, and then you know one or both of them licensed to Universal City Studios the ability to create another world. These are all derivative works. So when you do something, and you make a derivative of it, you must get the copyright. Now, is Axanar a derivative work? Well, it, it could seem that way. There was a lawsuit filed against them in December. Uh, in which uh, uh, Paramount um, uh, said that uh, you know you're you're using protected elements of of, of Star Trek. Now, none of the dialogue is part of the Star Trek canon, right? I mean, the the, the authors, the creators, the actors are all independent, quote unquote, of of Paramount and Paramount's control, and yet they have. You know the characters. They refer to different. You know they refer to the species, right? The the Klingon. They have kind of costumes, makeup, weapons, starships, and they also included language. Okay, and that got a lot of people anxious, and mm -hmm. and sort of in some ways became the premise for the column that I wrote. Uh, a a the language creation society actually filed a brief saying that. Uh, Quote, given that Paramount Pictures commissioned the creation of some of the language, it is understandable that they might feel some sense of ownership over the creation. But feeling ownership and having ownership are not the same thing. Nobody can use, and then here the brief uses the actual Klingon word, mind property law to limit others' rights to freely use a language. Now, look, I don't think that Paramount really sincerely believes that they can hold the copyright to the Klingon language. They just throw that into a lawsuit, mm -hmm. right? And, and shortly after this column appeared um, in April, we did see, a, a, excuse me, in May, 
we did see a news item saying that they that the producer of the upcoming Star Trek film had said, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to drop the lawsuit. Now, it hasn't been dropped, but there's been rumblings in the press that they're in negotiation to settle. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's just kind of the mm-hmm. news. And I don't have the twists and the turns. I'm not affiliated with mm-hmm. any of these parties to this, this lawsuit. Uh, but, but I do note that um, where it really becomes, and this is back to a point you were making, Tom, people who hold copyrights want to reap the benefit of their investment intellectually. And so if someone comes along and creates a completely new variant, but it fits within their world and will, um, this sort of veers into related field of trademark, it could kind of confuse people that this is part of the Star Trek world when it's not really the Star Trek world. That's a different thing, a trademark. But 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 there are some copyright elements where you use some, like, like can I go and, you know, take uh, the, the, the movie Titanic and do a sequel to the Titanic without the permission of the creators of that? Well, you, you certainly cannot copyright facts. I mean, no one can claim to say you cannot tell the story of the Titanic. It's a f- factual event that actually happened, right? So f- certain things are not protectable, but but there are things, other things that are. And that's where we veer into some interesting copyright debates about fair use and transformative work mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And we're going to we're going to talk about that. And we have some more more clips on that. <clears throat> we're uh, Pre-show, we're, we're thinking about a few of those uh, things. I want to turn back to uh, Lynn McNeil, um, have you respond to, and we're heading towards some some Klingon. We want to talk about the language portion of this, but just uh, the interaction between uh, interaction between fans and the the original creation. Here's Drew Clark's question in his piece in the Desert News: Do creators have any obligation to their readers and their fans who breathe life and energy into their creation? That's such a good question, and. I think in an idealistic way, the answer would be yes, because these are these are the people keeping a franchise going, really. And and it's interesting to see the antagonism come out between a, the corporate owner of something and the people who all they want to do is love that thing as much as they can. And I think one of the conflicts that arises here is that we do this on an informal word of mouth everyday culture level all the time when you go to a party and someone tells a really funny joke and a week later you're at another party and you turn around and tell that joke you it doesn't even cross your mind that you would owe royalties to the person from whom you first heard the joke that's how folk culture that's how word of mouth culture goes right we hear urban legends we pass them on we find out a fun thing a family does on christmas eve and we decide to do it with our family and we don't pay them for that we don't we can even take characters from other stories like traditional fairy tales little red riding hood and sleeping beauty and rapunzel and smash them together in fun and new ways to entertain our kids as we tell them bedtime stories and we see movie studios doing that as well um and so nowadays we have these copyrighted perhaps characters of you know Jean-Luc Picard or James Tiberius Kirk and we want to put them in our stories we want to we want to play with those ideas we want to do this and I think for a long time it similarly never crossed people's minds that that would be an issue that a movie studio would come in and say no you can't play you can't be creative with these characters and I actually think nowadays we're seeing some examples where production companies and and directors and writers who are open to the enthusiasm of their fans actually generate much, much more fan appreciation than those who really try hard to shut it down. <laughs> and and it's an interesting question of of legitimacy that that really becomes dicey when that particular line is crossed. One of the recent examples that that comes to mind for me is that just in December of last year, the song Happy Birthday was finally allowed into the public domain. People had been paying royalties to use that. Now, when the average everyday person thinks about the song Happy Birthday, you didn't learn that from your choir teacher. You didn't learn that, you know, in music lessons. You learned that from your parents and your friends when they sang it to you. That song belonged to everyone. And I know my students were always shocked to find out that 
that happy birthday was protected by copyright enough that you couldn't sing it on television. Mm -hmm. So we have all these silly alternative birthday songs that people have come up with, but it just feels like it belongs to everyone. And I think mm -hmm. that's why people feel about a lot of the pop culture around them. This this is a thing I love. It's familiar to me. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to do things with L it. Then let me yeah, just jump, let me mm -hmm. just jump in on that point about play. And and so this is where again technology is changing the way we relate to copyright. Before you mentioned 1977 Star Wars comes out, people are coming home, they're 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 playing, you know, but no one's taking a video of it, right? And and the the kind of the benchmark test for copyright is um, the fixation in a medium of expression. So, so basically, um, you know, if someone's playing, that's not fixed anywhere. It's not recorded. It's not, you know, painted or photographed. Then, then it's ephemeral, and it is not subject to copyright in any way, shape, or form. But when people are playing with their cameras because they're so prevalent and cheap and, you know, my daughter wants to remix home videos and add in music, and, I mean, that's, that's when you start, you know, playing literally with the copyrighted terms and and so a lot of times people will go back to a a um an aspect of, of copyright law called fair use. And it's an extremely important part. In fact it's it, in my view it's the only way copyright law can withstand First Amendment scrutiny is that there's this escape valve for fair use. And what fair use basically means is that you have some right to make a, a small use of a work, um, and there's a bunch of factors that are considered that really boil down to: Are they competing with the market that is out there? So, you know, someone playing—I mean, if it, even if it were fixed, like recorded, someone playing with their lightsabers is not competing with the market, right? It's when someone does something like a, a parody, right? Like so, Gone with the Wind. Someone did a, a, a takeoff version called The Wind Done Gone, which completely kind of told the story of. The, the South and the Civil War from the the perspective of the the slaves on this particular plantation. So that that was a, an actual case in which the owners of the the estate of Margaret Mitchell sued the publishing company that wanted to put this book forward, The Wind Done Gone, and they the, the case was dismissed because they had a fair use right to make to make use, even though there was a quote competing market, right? And so you do get into this question. So, you know, is Axanar you know, a fan it was just a fan film and they weren't quote making money off it, then Paramount might just say, okay, fine, you know, fair use. But when they're out there putting forth this as a professional amateur, you know, or a, a, an independent professional, I mean, that, that is a little weird, right? I mean, is it or is it not Paramount? Do they do they or do they not hold a copyright mm -hmm. over this film franchise? And so they, they are reluctant uh, to allow something to compete with them. But it looks like, they again, they may come to some kind of accommodation after all. That would seem to be smart from Paramount's... Well, I would, I would think, right from you, Paramount, CBS, to, to, I mean, you want to make money off it, but you don't want to be seen as opposing your fan base. You do, and the music industry had a terrible time with this when Napster mm. was around. I mean, they basically were suing their best customers, mm. right? People who wanted and loved the music the most, they were out there, you know, filing lawsuits against them. Uh, look, smart copyright holders find ways to allow for uses. And it's, it's kind of like the freemium business model. You give people a couple free uh, versions, and then they, those who really become hooked will will subscribe and pay you and pay you a fee. So, um, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where a lot of businesses go uh, these days. Let's hear it. You mentioned um, The Wind Ungone. And so that's printed work, right? We, we couldn't really do that on the radio, but, but uh, I thought of Carol Burnett. I don't know if you're familiar. Our audience is probably familiar with Carol Burnett's The Wind Gone, which is a classic skit. And so we've got about a minute of this. In the middle of this, you'll hear about 30 seconds of laughter. That's, this, that's where Carol Burnett appears at the top of the stairs with her beautiful dress with the curtain rods still attached. Uh, she says she found this in the window. So this is, this is you know, Gone with the Wind, their version, The Wind Done, uh, The Wind Went with the wind. This is Harvey Corman, Vicki Lawrence, and uh, Carol Burnett. Let's hear a bit of this. My wish will come true, sissy. It like my dreams have went with the wind. What wind? <laughs> That's real pretty, but that don't answer my question. 
legs and you. Scarlet, I love you. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. Scarlet. I'm sorry. Maybe it isn't Scarlet. Yes, it is, Scarlet. Yes. Will you marry me? Marry you? Why, you're the scum of the ocean and the chicken of the sea. Of course I'll marry you. That's uh, Went With the Wind, at least part of it, uh, Carol Burnett. She's found this in the window, and it's 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 the actual curtain <laughs> she's just put on with the rod attached. So that's parody, right? So Carol Burnett show can, sure, can, can sure. use that. So, yeah, Basically, uh, the the the, the te- when you're when you're making fun of something, uh, you have a broader latitude with w- in fair use because there's not this issue of you know I mean again the the fair use factors include the commercial market but they also includes the amount and proportion that you're taking right so the wind done gone the book. Actually, sort of took lines of the 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 work and and re re reused it right. Uh, t- took uh, uh, substantial portions right, and so I mean this didn't take anything from the. It just made a reference to right, which of course which is allowed right. You, mm-hmm. I can make a reference to Star Trek. I could even you know have have some some scene where you know you know. Leonard Nemo walks on, right? And 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 there's there's a little bit of, of interaction. It's it's about the the again, it's about the amount, the the extent. I mean, this this Axonar film is completely living within the world created by Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. Going to Harry Potter, I cannot go and, and build a Harry Potter wizarding world of you know, Drew Clark's world of of wizarding world of, of Harry Potter. Well, I mean, I get a knock on my door. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not my creation. It's it's the creation of the author and the person that the author licenses to to build that work. If I create my own imaginative work, then then I expect the same right under copyright law. And, and that's and that's where we're we're kind of pushing the boundaries, right? What can you do without asking permission? There's a great line that a lot of folks who are in the tech industry use. It's called, "The internet enables permissionless innovation." Okay, and that's what is so great, and why the, the the internet has become the success that it is, is because you can just create a software program and release it, and no, you know, no one needs to weigh weigh in on it or sign off on it. Um, sometimes copyright law becomes a roadblock in the area of permissionless creation, mm-hmm. and everyone is building on the shoulders of others. You right. mentioned Disney. Okay, Disney's the greatest user or abuser of this, right? They've taken all of these stories from from history, from fables, from legend, the Brothers Grimm. Those are in the public domain because, again, copyright is for limited times. It can't last forever, although it sometimes seems like it is because every time Mickey Mouse comes up for renewal, he will in a few years now, we can certainly expect copyright interests to go and lobby Washington and say, we need a longer period of time because... Mickey's our trademark, right? And and so so you, you you see this battle, and and I am quite sympathetic to the view that you know clamping down more and more and more on copyright just sort of stifles it, and, and it is totally um, at odds with the way people are actually practicing and using mm-hmm. and making use of these these stories and and playing with them in folklore. Disney is actually a really yeah. good example of this. We just had a graduate student in our folklore program here at USU do his master's thesis on aspects of Disneyland fandom. And Disney's an interesting company because they tend not to look kindly on fans producing fan content and things like this. And one of the rules they have is that no adult, I don't know what the age cutoff is, is allowed to go into the park in costume dressed as any Disney character. And as you've been to Comic-Con and other, you know, fan conventions like that, dressing up is an enormous expression of fan community and fan culture. And here is a Disney saying, absolutely not. And you can understand if someone did a really convincing Cinderella and kids are going up and asking this woman for her autograph instead of the Disney-approved Cinderella character, that could get dicey. But Fans have come up with this fabulous workaround that they call Disney bounding, which is dressing in 
ostensibly street clothes that are color and fashion coordinated enough to strongly evoke a particular character. And then the goal is you go to Disneyland in your Disney bounding outfit and get your picture taken with the character that you are dressed as. And of course, when you stand next to them, suddenly it's, oh, that bow tie and those polka dotted (laughs) pants and that vest, I see you're dressed as this character. And it's a really interesting point of tension. We see fans not being turned off by Disney's legal lockdown on their characters and their imagery. They're being creatively challenged. They're going, how far can I push this before I get booted out of this park? Which is interest is strange antagonism with a corporation that these fans are purporting to love. And uh, the the. Boundaries will only get more and more blurred, right? As technology advances, we're, oh, absolutely. we're all taking videos with our phone and pictures, yeah. and and a lot of us are creating things. And I think a big part you know? of that is we don't. Many people these days perceive that as no different from the type of creation they would do before that technology was available to them. So, so that sense of I'm making a video of this with my friends, people don't perceive that as, you know broadcast of something but it's it is it is exactly the same perception that they have of play that does not involve technology Mm -hmm. and things like that so there's sort of this this blurring of boundaries where we have people posting things on on youtube whether it's a parody the youtube series adult wednesday adams was a great example of this that was actually taken down for a while though i have recently heard it might be up again so Mm -hmm. i don't know where this stands but it was a young woman very funny hypothetically putting together scenarios where the character from the Adams Family TV show of Wednesday, the young daughter, is now an adult going through normal life circumstances, but with her sort of dour, macabre Adams Family appearance and demeanor and attitude. And it was wonderfully hilarious. And it's easy to see how a group of friends could get. I remember making commercials with my friends for various products, and we would get out an old VHS camera and film them just for fun. And now YouTube is almost the storage bank for that. That's where I upload my videos. I don't, you know, I upload them to the cloud. The fact that they're accessible to other people, the fact that a high number of views might start generating revenue for me as a user of YouTube are things that I think are often on the back burner in people's minds. They just don't see it as shifting gears from from a folk realm of engagement to a commercial realm of engagement. It is perceived just as this is how I interact with yeah. my stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. there's there's the two trends going on are the blurring of the public and the private. And mm-hmm. so when you're on Facebook, are you private or are you public? You're both, right? You're communicating to a select group of people. And, and sort of our notes are a little more formal. You know, they, they kind of, the line between a draft and a final version is is porous, is extremely porous now. So that's one trend. And the other trend just being the availability of technology, the fact that you'll videotape everyday things and, and things, again, that wouldn't have been fixed previously. And, and we're going to see this with this be able to play out with virtual reality, right? As people start to go, whoa, what, can, you know, is my, my 3D visual alternative world that I'm creating and overlaying on some other world is that you know a, a copyright protection people are cons- are producers as well as consumers of media and so it's the the blurring of those bounds and the fact that everyone is a producer that are just going to have more and more conflicts and battles over a technology that was really built for the printing press mm-hmm. to stop copying as opposed to a world where every computer copies. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. It copies. That That's how you see things mm-hmm. is there's a copying and a copying and a copying of, of images and digital data. Let's take another break. We'll be back with Lynn McNeil and Drew Clark following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services hosting the Utah Rural Summit, an annual gathering of rural Utah leaders Thursday and Friday, August 4th and 5th in the SUU Hunter Conference Center. Details at utahlinks.org URS. Support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. We're discussing fandom. What does it mean to be a fan and how do fans or how should fans interact with the creators 
of the worlds that uh, that they enjoy so much and uh, like to get lost in. We're talking with uh, Drew Clark. He is uh, an attorney at uh, Best Best and Krieger, previously opinion editor at Deseret News. We're also talking with Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of folklore in the English department at Utah State University. I want to ask Lynn about <clears throat> virtual reality, but just parenthetically, I've always wondered this about YouTube. YouTube's wonderful. I can go, I can go into corners. Uh, for example, if I want, and I've done this, I'm an opera nerd, so I can watch. I can just go down down an hour of uh, Romanian opera sopranos anywhere I want to go. And so that's wonderful. But I've, I've kind of wondered because there's sometimes comments, oh, I had to delete this because I didn't have the copyright. And I always wonder, should I feel a little dirty from a copyright standpoint watching YouTube or am I okay? I wouldn't, uh, Tom. I mean, you know, the studios have a very elaborate system of notice and takedown that, if anything, is overly biased towards the copyright holders and, and gives gives them a immediate right to, by filing a section 512 notice you know get get information down from from YouTube so YouTube is is gonna follow those rules and if anything sort of bend over backwards to the copyright mm-hmm. holders there of course there are other sites that are always kind of it's like a whack-a-mole you knock one site mm-hmm. off there's there's other peer-to-peer mm-hmm. sites that that are not uh, abiding by those protections offshore sites and so forth but but uh, YouTube and Facebook and you know, Vimeo and the other players really kind of follow a pretty strict copyright. Okay, you've, you've eased my mind there, and, and well, hopefully and others in the audience. But. If, you know, illicit Romanian opera yeah. is the worst <laughs> thing people are finding online, <laughs> we are in luck. So, <laughs> Well, you start with Ileana Kotherbos, and then you go from there. Hey, you know. hey, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. Uh, it's, it's a rabbit hole. It, yeah, you can spend hours. <laughs> uh, so, Lynn, interesting, uh, Drew brought up uh, virtual reality. Yeah, you know, this is a this is a burgeoning realm of experience for people, mostly at this point, at least that I'm familiar with it, kind of in the game genre, the immersive technology where you can look up, look down, look left, look right. I know there's now people are working on getting your hands as an element that where you can actually look down and see your own hands and reach out and touch things and and whatnot in this. I think the biggest thing that that we see is people and people have done this in a pre-technological world all over the place, you use what resources are available to you to make the sort of commentary and content that you want. And we see this in the study of vernacular architecture. People build houses back when most people were building their own homes a certain way and using whatever's there, whatever building materials you have, whatever artistic decorations you have. And we see this still now in the creation of a lot of rural mailboxes where people are mm-hmm. welding together tire rims and and putting old pieces of, you know, tree stumps that they've cut down and chainsawing them into neat designs and sticking a mailbox on top. And we see this creative use of what's available all over the place. And it's this assumed thing we have. You add technology into that and what's available to us is suddenly enormous. And if I can't download a photograph, I take a screen capture and I edit it into a a usable image. And I can, you know, import music and images and and pictures of other people, famous people and all of this stuff and stick it together. I think the exact same thing will happen with virtual reality. We will simply use what is available to us as that technology becomes more available. We will make it happen. And you can see, I mean, Google's virtual reality box is a little cardboard thing that you can build yourself if you want or send away for very cheaply. And it's this little cardboard box you strap your phone into and stick it over your eyes. And suddenly you have immersive virtual reality without a, you know, multi hundred dollar device or anything like that. And so we see that resourcefulness of people and we see Google getting on board with that resourcefulness. They're not saying you need a thousand dollars of equipment here, have this piece of cardboard and check out our virtual reality. And we're just that, that's that's going to step up. I think this is probably the challenge on a legal front is that people simply take what they have. I remember before Napster, most of my music collection came from cassette tapes that my friends had copied for me. They had they bought a good album. I wanted it, too. They said, well, you know, I have a dual cassette boombox. Let me copy the tape and give it to you. And how far a stretch is that from? Oh, this is a friend I don't know who has that song on a peer to peer network. And I downloaded it from that person. And obviously, there's a massive difference in reach and availability and and all of that. And those people are not necessarily my good friends. But it's not conceptually 
all that different. So, so I think we see, regardless of the technology, I think we see people exerting that sense of creative ownership over the stuff around them. Business models change mm-hmm. to adapt for changing technologies. Right. I mean, the music industry was stuck on the album for many years until Steve Jobs finally showed them, hey, you can actually sell individual tracks on an iPhone platform, an iTunes platform. The, you know, the other piece of this I wanted to throw in is uh, 3D printing. Right. I mean, because and what you're talking about mailboxes and the the creativity and the use of things, 3D printing, you're basically downloading physical objects. Right. And then you're you're printing them out. And it, it's, it's such a boon for, you know, parts manufacturers who need a little part to fit in, fit in and the, you know, take them weeks or or the military that, that you know, you got very specialized parts. And and we're we're going to see it's it's really the digitification of everything, right? Where where even things that we think of as atom and carbon based are able to be transferred into bits and bytes that mm-hmm. are then you know communicated in a in a, a widespread fashion. Right. I think we're we're pretty near end of time. I want to I want to bring in language language is so so fascinating, especially invented languages. So we talked about this near the beginning of the program. I want to bring this here near the end. Uh, let's talk about Klingon. We could talk about you know Elvish or or any other invented language. Klingon's an interesting example because it was invented. It has taken on a bit of a life of its own. There are Klingon speakers uh, out there. Uh, including there's a production of uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet in Klingon. And if you listen to Access Utah, you've heard this a bit of this before. Here's a bit of the to be or not to be speech in Klingon. It's to be or to not not to be a portion of that speech of Shakespeare, of course, translated into Klingon. Let me start with uh, with Lynn McNeil on this. This is, I I think, a really good example of this is invented for a specific universe, an owned universe, Star Trek, Paramount, CBS own it. Um, And it was thrown into this lawsuit. But can you, this is an example of where fans have just taken this to a life of its own. People, a small number admittedly, speak Klingon. Yeah, speak Klingon and more than speak Klingon fluently, use Klingon terms and words. And it's a commonly understood attitude among Klingons that you haven't really heard Shakespeare until you've seen it in Klingon. And it's such a it's such a wonderfully immersive idea that that this culture exists and has its own, not even just language, but its own customs, its own fashion, its own style. And to, to get to play around in that world is, I think, a very appealing thing. But there's also something wonderful that happens when I was young. I had the Burlitz Guide to Easy Everyday Klingon on a cassette tape that I remember listening to and learning, and it's sadly gone now, but learning how to say, you know, hello, how are you? How are you is something like, are you in good health? Mm-hmm. You know, that the, a good Klingon way of asking if someone is physically fit instead of just how they're feeling, you know. It's sort of a testament to how well that linguist that they hired, as far as I understand it, initially it was, as, as Drew said, sort of in the second or third film, that they finally brought someone in to say, we need a language that's going to sound coherent. There had been words used that I think were just ad-libbed by actors in in earlier things. Um, To say, we're going to create this, you can try that, and it doesn't always work. You know, other people have done it. But it's a testament, I think, to the richness of the culture that the show has created, that that works for people, that people are willing to catch on to that, that people are willing to run with that and adapt it. And, and it's it's an interesting commentary on the nature of folk culture because as folk culture is specifically not copyrighted and not institutionalized and no one's ever going to test you on it, no one in the world is going to make you account for your ability to speak Klingon. And yet people are prepared to. That tells us something. This matters to people. I mean, when we look at fandoms and not just Nielsen numbers and audiences at home, but the people who identify as creative engagers with this material, 
there's an incredible commitment to it that is really a testament to the source material, I think. That doesn't happen in a world that is not rich enough. Mm. Yeah, it was Mark Okrand, who, uh, a linguist, who was hired to, to create this. And I've actually seen a video of him discussing the process he went through. It's incredible because he, he basically had to work with that dialogue that existed, you know, the four lines or whatever. And then he had to kind of run with the way it evolved as actors performed uh, and maybe made mistakes he sort of reincorporated those in and and he he, he basically has a you know a, a, a guttural sounding language that follows some rules but not all rules of of human languages and and uh, you know as Lynn was saying it really has uh, tapped into something in the psyche of of fans to be able to live in this world and speak this language and and uh, you know it, it truly the the society that filed the brief is correct that you, you cannot you know control a, a language copy a language is not among the types of copyrighted works for which you can claim protection in the Copyright Act and so it it, it was a stretch it would be a stretch to to copyright that that or to attempt to, to copyright a language in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me get to final words from each of you, uh, first from Lynn McNeil on, on this uh, the subject. Yeah, I think on the whole, knowing that the legal issues will certainly not stop, I imagine, there the, things like this will always crop up, whether it's happy birthday or the Klingon language. But I think on the whole, the recognition that this drive to creatively reproduce the materials that we have is not a criminal one is an important thing. I think being aware that that most of this is being done through appreciation, admiration, creativity, all of that, rather than, I mean, plagiarism is a word that rings very negatively to a lot of us. And I know I fail students when they plagiarize on their papers. And to equate this creative reconfiguration and transformation with something like plagiarism, I think is really dangerous. I think fans, the outlets that have welcomed fan contribution, have acknowledged their fans, have praised the validity of fan ideas, have grown even more beloved. And I think that is a a beneficial way to go about things, to acknowledge that fans are no longer consumers but co-producers and to make use of that, to engage that further, I think would be a, a reasonable business model and and something to think about in the future. Drew Clark. The closing sentence of my article was that the parable of Axanar shows the need to restore balance to the universe of copyright. And so that's really one of three closing thoughts I share that uh, and, and America, unlike some nations in the rest of the world really gets this right, that copyright is a utilitarian bargain where the protection is afforded to advance the progress of science and the useful arts, not intrinsically because of something the author, some genius of the author. It it is to give us better works. And if it's not giving us better works, then it's not serving its purpose. And secondly is the need to recognize we all stand on the shoulders of others. And so a better policy is to make sure you're attributing what you're doing, you know, quoting, this avoids the plagiarism work, you're citing. And I think fandom is clearly referencing, citing their sources, if you will, in their works. And that's that's kind of, if you will, the key necessity. And then finally is to recognize that technology is going to change certain business models. Some are going to go out of fashion and they need to reinvent themselves as cell phones become ever present, as cameras, as virtual reality, as 3D printing becomes more available. That's the kind of process of constant uh, dis- generation, destruction, creative destruction and creative regeneration of our business world. Well, we've, uh, we're out of time, but thank you very much, Drew Clark. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Appreciate being here. Lynn McNeil. Thank you. Thank you. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of the College, College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay with us because Radio Lab is up next.